Hey friends, welcome to another Le Vital Core Salon conversation. For those of you who are new, welcome. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Snyder, and I am here to offer you sonic comfort and conversation, especially for all of those women out there who just don't have time for bullshit or burnout. Today, I'm super duper excited to introduce you to Sharon Rowe. Sharon is the founder and CEO of EcoBags Products, which she started in 1989. She's an award-winning pioneer of the reusable bag movement and has been featured in media outlets like Time Magazine, Glamour, The Oprah Show, and so many more. Sharon has been regularly speaking about entrepreneurship for years and recently condensed all of that knowledge and all of those talks and all of her experience into this really awesome fast read of a book called The Magic of Tiny Business. And I'm not the only person who loves it. Seth Godin had a few words about it too. He says, this is a powerful book. Tiny is mighty. Sharon Rose's simple shift in thinking is a profound idea and precisely what we need to hear. And when Sharon's not busy running the company, speaking, ridding the world of single-use plastic bags. She's also active in the Social Venture Network, B Corporation, the Women's President's Organization, and the governing board of Westchester Collaborative Theater. Whew! I'm so pleased that we actually got this time with Sharon. Sharon and I recorded our conversation back in January, and I am recording this intro right after finishing my fellowship with the Good Work Institute here in the Hudson Valley. So my voice is a little bit shredded for this intro, and I'm not going to make you listen to it much more. I just want to remind you all, before we dive over to the interview, to make sure you subscribe to Le Vital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts, and please, 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 that's a triple please, folks, share this podcast with one human that you think might dig this episode. Not only will it help grow this podcast, but it's going to help amplify all the great work that Sharon is doing out there in the world. Voila, meet Sharon Rowe. Sharon, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. Thank you. I'm really, really thrilled to be here. So I feel like there are 10 billion questions that I wanted to ask you after seeing you speak in Woodstock and then... I think I tore through your book in an entire afternoon. It's, <laughs> That's great. And it is completely covered in like question marks and stuff circled and things like that, which is usually a good sign that my curiosity has been massively piqued. Uh-huh. So to get the audience up to speed with who you are and what you've accomplished, around 30 years ago, you were a working actress with a new baby and a mission to rid the world of single-use plastic bags. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. That was the start. <laughs> now you're the founder and CEO of EcoBag Products. Mm-hmm. How did you go from A to B? You know, it all started <laughs> with me, you know, having to have a job job because I was a working actress and even working actresses can't pay the rent. And um, I had this job and it really wasn't satisfying me personally. And around the same time I had a baby and around the same time I noticed that all these single use plastic bags were, well, not even useful. I'd get them at 
every time I went out to shop, they always broke by the time I got home. I saw them, you know, then in the trees and on the ground. And I lived near the Hudson River up in uh, Washington Heights. So I saw them in the river and I was like, I don't want to be part of this. This is just, it's not something I want to contribute to my neighborhood is, you know, broken plastic bags. I remember that when I was in Europe many, many years prior, backpacking through Europe, um, that I used reusable bags because there weren't plastic bags. And so long story short, I got some of those bags brought to me here in the U.S. And I started using these string net filet shopping bags in my neighborhood and started saying no, just for my own personal perspective, to say no to single-use plastic bags. And I felt better not taking those bags. And I noticed people noticing what I was doing. I saw them watching me. Some thought it was a little weird. Some people said, oh, what are you doing? And so I saw little sparks, really, 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 really tiny sparks go off. And I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty normal. And if I'm having this idea, I bet other people are having this idea of not taking these wasteful bags. But they don't have an alternative. And I actually have one, the one that was brought to me by some friends. And what would happen if they had access to an alternative to these single-use plastic bags? And that's kind of when I got the idea for the business. I thought, huh, could this be a business? And honestly, I... I don't know that I knew that it would grow as it's grown over the years exponentially. I set out to change my own behavior and saw that it could be something I could influence, I influence I could bring influence to other people. I wanted to change my neighborhood. <laughs> and maybe I had the, had this idea that it could influence on a much larger scale. It could really tip and and, you know, bleed over, I don't know, maybe even to New Jersey, you know. <laughs> it could be something that, that happened, you know, in other towns. But right then and there, I was just thinking about my own neighborhood, my own needs and desires, and thinking that, again, like I said, I'm normal. So if other people are connecting to what I'm connecting to, something will happen. Can I and, ask a question about, like, the yeah. this notion of being normal and, yeah. you know, its opposite, being a weirdo? Yeah. I feel like at that point, when you were bringing this reusable bag at a time where people weren't thinking about this at all, did you feel like a weirdo in that moment? Did you care? Yeah, no, I never felt like a weirdo. I mean, I felt like a weirdo on other things. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't feel like a weirdo on this because I kind of, I don't know, I just was really, I was really connected to what made me feel feel good and what made me not feel good and this was in New York in the late 80s early 90s and just like you know the smell of urine when you turn a corner the trash on the street in my not so fancy neighborhood really bugged me it it was offensive and I felt like I have to do something about this I can't contribute to it and I can't ignore it because every time I walk by it it feels icky so I mean, I think that was combined, too, with me just having a child because, you know, all my senses were that much more awakened and I was more focused on having this child and being in, uh, you know, a a relationship with my husband. And and I wasn't 
only singly focused on my acting career anymore. Um, so I was more aware, conscious of the moments. Um, but that sense of normal, no, I felt pretty normal. And I felt like we all share a lot of the same uh, hopes and desires. But what we don't all share is where we decide to say yes or no to something. And we can only absorb so much stuff or pings to our consciousness or pings to our reality where we just can't take it anymore. You know, I feel like it's network. I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. And oh my gosh, I could go off on politics right now, but let's just, let's just stay with <laughs> single-use plastic bags. Let's stay zen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's stay zen. You know, I, I felt like I was pretty normal and that other people needed to find their normalness. <laughs> and what's so interesting about this and this dovetails where I've, I feel like for the past year or so, I've been kind of doing a deep dive into human-centered design and design thinking. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of, have you read the book Creative Confidence by the two no. brothers from IDEO? Um, no, but I've heard of it. As I'm listening to your story, it seems like whether this was conscious or not, you know, like when you think about innovation, right, it's asking a good question, right? So you were kind of like, what if, what if I just swapped out this bag? What if I just started using this in the neighborhood? What if I did right. this? Right. And then also just having the courage to act on it, right? Because a lot of people think of cool ideas or or recognize problems that exist around them, but a f tiny subset of that actually act on it, and you did. Right. Well, I had access to an idea that maybe other people didn't have which was I'd used a bag that I brought to the store when I was traveling through Europe, you know, like I said, backpacking. So when you travel through Europe with a backpack, you literally only have your backpack. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I was in my mid-20s, and so I had to have something that was small and compactable that could expand to hold whatever I got when I went to, you know, the boulangerie or, you know, stopped off at whatever the pastry shops were it's on my list but whatever I needed something to put my things in that I could then put away and store because when I first had the idea and decided oh well I don't want to take these really crappy little bags because in my neighborhood like I said they weren't, weren't that great there really weren't any alternatives in the U.S. that I could find and I looked far and wide this is pre-google right this is pre-internet mm -hmm. all that was really available was uh, I found library uh, uh, bags, but they were never really big enough. They didn't have a gusset. And I found hefty bags, really thick, big canvas bags, which wouldn't fold up. So nothing really met my my needs as an urban shopper or as an, a resident of an urban area shopping on a daily basis. So I think other people may have had the same kind of ideas or desires or were pinged beyond belief, same level as me, you know, with the amount of just trash. But there was nothing available to them in their busy day to say, oh, I can use that instead of that. Right. You know, and, and I don't think that happened for about 14 years, to be honest with you. I mean, I know that it was happening in different pockets. And I know after I started, see, when I started, I didn't know anyone else doing what I was doing or really addressing this problem, which I didn't even know how big it was.
You know, it wasn't like it was a global problem. I'm going to go out to set, you know, uh, to find the solution. It was a local problem to me that I wanted to not participate in. So through the years, though, I found other people also accessing um, or I should say addressing this problem with similar kinds of product ideas, reusable bags, and was so excited to find them. It wasn't like, oh, gosh, now I have competition. It was like, <laughs> great, let's do this together. Like, because we might see the death of a single-use plastic bag in our lifetime. Yeah. Like, this is not something that I say, oh, I want to own the reusable bag marketplace. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> I knew, essentially, that I was launching what could be very quickly commoditized, even if branded, right? Because yes. everything winds up moving in that direction. Um, just think about sneakers. You know, sneakers are a great example because they're basically a commodity, but they're branded. So some are branded, and that's what makes them distinct, which is their lineage, right? The branding is their lineage, how and why they're made and who made them, etc. But I knew that, I guess I just knew intuitively that the bag was a teaching tool. It wasn't just a product. It was the seed for a very big idea, but planted one at a time. Yes. And that the more seeds that I planted vis-a-vis -vis selling a bag, uh, talking about it to people who didn't even um, agree with me, like, why do you need that? I get those for free. And this is before any of the um, analytics had come out and the budgets with regards to cost of cleanup and all that. Mm -hmm. And way, 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 way before plastics in the ocean. You know, so it was no, somehow knowing that this was going to become, and this is actually in retrospect after I wrote the book, that this tiny company, a tiny idea, could become a platform for something pretty substantial. And, and that how it contagious. Would, and contagious, right. It would spread. And it was really, it's not just that I, I planted seeds, but people who said, yeah, she's onto something. I agree with this. We need to do something about this. They are the people who built the grassroots movements that are shifting laws about single-use plastics throughout the world. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's so cool. <laughs> it makes me think I listened to a podcast with Terry Gross and Bruce Springsteen. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he was talking about the characters that he's written about in his song, right? Like being mm -hmm. in his early 20s and being in Asbury Park and part of this like kooky kind of scene that was happening and just saying, I'm going to write about these characters that are around me. And that's just where I'm going to begin from and just tell their stories and write them out in songs. And, you know, we look back at, like, Bruce's career at this point, you know, the Broadway show, the albums, the tours, like, the success he's had. But, you know, when he was talking, he's like, yeah, it just started writing about what was around me, writing these, like, small, what felt like small ideas of just, like, what was, you know, an arm's length or two arm's lengths away from me at any given moment mm -hmm. and then how it just can snowball in ways that can be wildly unexpected yeah you can't know it all when you start 
because if you know it all when you start, all you're really doing is bringing your past into your present, right? Brilliant. Because yes. because you, you know your past, and so that's all you can know. You can't know your future. I mean, how it will all play out. Because it's in the future. You're not there yet. <laughs> we all become master extrapolators yeah, on, on, I, on that past data. Yeah, I can't set out to drive to Woodstock right now and know what's going to happen when I get to Woodstock. You know, just parking spaces. I mean, what stores will be <laughs> I can't know any of that until I get in my car and, get, and drive to Woodstock. I'm here, you're there. You know? Yeah. But we have this idea that you have to know it all, and I so agree with that. I just actually went to a really, really lovely retrospective of Raj Chast's work at um, School of Visual Arts Gallery. Mm-hmm. She's the New Yorker cartoonist. Um, and aside from her brilliance and her cartoons, I, I mean, we were just walking around the gallery cracking up, and everybody was laughing because she just hits the nail on the head so, so often with her humor. Um, in her characters, there was a video about her, and she was talking about how she just writes down everything, little bits and pieces, ideas, whatever she, and, and she, it's her way of processing, and I remember, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the dancer, oh, Twyla Tharp, she did that too, yes. she just collected, 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 and I've always done that, I mean, my desk at different points is just a massive sticky note collection, <laughs> <laughs> which I, which I generally just toss in the recycling bin too, you know. And I also do use the opposite side of paper, so I can use <laughs> responsible. But the thing is, ideas and impressions come in from all different places, and until you realize that they're all inputs, and at some point there's going to be some output, but you can't force the output. Oh, exactly. However, you can start at whatever point you want to start and see what happens. And it may lead to something. There's no guarantees. Absolutely. So Sharon, tell us, did you finally track down a bag or did you actually have to make your own to solve no, this I, original problem? Yeah, I tracked one down. So what I did is, you know, this thing called synchronicity, right? Yes. So I'm having this idea and we had some friends over for dinner and they were going to France. <laughs> and we said, hey, can you bring me one of these home? Um, I probably came home with one, but I couldn't find it, you know, from years and years prior. So they brought home exactly what I wanted, which was the French filet uh, net string bag, which um, was perfect because it crunches down and then expands. Well, I started using it. And like I said, people were responding to me uh, positively and negatively. Um, interesting, too, because there were a lot of uh, uh, immigrants in who owned shops in Washington Heights, and they totally got it, you know, Europeans especially. Mm-hmm. And um, but then I had to go find bags. I had to manufacture them if I was going to start a business. Um, so the first thing I did was name the company and the brand. Um, that was done in a nanosecond at my kitchen table. My husband said, "Eco bags." I said, "That works." Okay. <laughs> we didn't know anything about trademarking. I mean, we didn't. I hadn't gone to business school. I remember, I was an actress. And he was a musician and a lyricist, so he's good at that. Um, so, we're, yeah, words help. Yeah, <laughs> word, words help. But I had to find this thing that I wanted to then uh, test. I wanted to test the concept. And then I probably, if it worked, I wanted to actually have a supply chain. So this is all pre-internet. I actually faxed all the different consulates in New York 
in European countries because there was no EU. And I faxed them in order to find out if there were manufacturers of this thing that I was looking for. And I faxed Germany, France, Spain, and Italy. Germany responded within about a week or two. I said, yes, we have these. And I said, great. And they sent me a sample. The French consulate, I never got a response. <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever. Just nothing. Uh, I got some bags from Spain probably about six months later, and Italy responded almost 18 months later with the most beautiful bags, the highest prices, and just, I, was, I had already started with the German company. So long story short, I went with the German company, I brought some in, I started knocking on doors, mostly downtown, you know, in the fancier neighborhoods, Amsterdam and Columbus in the 80s saying, what do you think of this concept called reusable bags? You could, you know, sell these to your customers or give them to them when they purchased X amount. And I got a reasonably good, <clears throat> excuse me, response, enough so that I thought, huh, I should get some more of these in. And so slowly but surely, I started selling the bags, literally door to door, until there was a... Uh, an announcement for Earth Day, I think it was the 10th anniversary, I'm not quite sure, but it was in 1990, and we set up a booth on 6th Avenue along with all these other people doing Earth Day type things. Uh, we sold out, I think I had a, I can't remember, see I wish, I have to go back into my numbers, but let's say I, I sold a thousand bags in under four hours, uh, hand over fist, people wanted them, and from that then, I got featured in New York Newsday uh, with some write-up which said they could order bags, and um, I got lots and lots of requests for orders by phone and by fax and by mail, because um, that's all we had back then, and I remember going to the post office with my mother-in-law, um, and from there, uh, my husband met someone in a local natural product store, which I wouldn't even go into because I thought they were yucky back then. <laughs> I was like, ew. I mean... You know, fine. I mean, we're actually back to bulk foods, but back then it was bulk foods without any kind of merchandising. It was just like, there's the rice. Yeah, in a box, standing a up, box. probably. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, but he met somebody who was uh, delivering um, to the store, and they were tied to a distributor, and so we wound up being distributed. But again, you know, if you're in distribution, it doesn't really work unless you have customers who the distributor is servicing who say, I want that thing. Um, so it took a really, really long time to take off. But you asked me about uh, suppliers. So that supplier in Germany was really good. And we liked them and we created a really nice relationship with them and worked with them for a bunch of years. In fact, my hallway in Washington Heights uh, was boxes of bags. <laughs> we, had to, we had to move the bicycles. Um, in order to make way for the, the boxes and also stack them so that they wouldn't fall on my uh, crawling baby. Um, <laughs> so I, at this that was, point... That was our security issue. <laughs> got it. <laughs> so at this point, I'm picturing you're running the business out of your house. You have boxes and supplies and envelopes and shipping stuff stacked up all yep. over the place. All over the You've place. You've got your mother-in-law packing and shipping yep. orders with you. Yep. Yeah, and, and you walking to the... Walking to the post office where they wouldn't, they didn't even have the stamps at that point where you could like go, you know, um, imprint, imprint, imprint. They handed me back rolls of stamps that we had to lick no. <laughs> and, put, and put on these packages. Yeah. 
It was before the peel and stick, you think? I'm pretty sure it was before peel it and stick. It had to be. Because, I, I, I mean, I remember when there. peel yeah. and stick came out. So. Yeah. Yeah. It was ridiculous, yeah. Oh, my God. So... I guess there's there's a couple questions. I want to I want to back. I mean, back. I did have a computer, just so FYI, but there was no internet. I mean, there was email, men, li, you know, limited. So. Yes, it was starting. Yeah. So, I have a couple questions. Let me backtrack here to you going out and knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is a subset of listeners, like where we've gotten so accustomed to relying on email to then set up a phone call to then maybe meet in person, right? There's all these hoops that like socially and culturally we're kind of moving to, right? Like I even look at when I am communicating with Craig's baby brother, who's 10 years younger than him, you know, that sometimes I send an email and he responds with a text, Right? Like it's it's a totally different way of communicating. So I hear you describing like just going out there and knocking on doors and just think, whoa. Yeah. What can we extrapolate from that to bring forward to how people are doing business now? You know, when I went out and knocked on doors, which is actually just a phrase because I really just walked in the doors because they were stores. (laughs) But I had to say, uh, can I speak to the owner? right? Who owns the shop? I remember being unbelievably nervous, right? But it was kind of like an audition. You know, oh. it's when you go into an audition, when you start auditioning as an actor, um, although I don't know that I ever lost it, you're really nervous. But when you do it a lot, you lose the nervousness because you're building a skill. You're building a skill of walking in Assessing your surrounding, understanding what you're asking for, what you're there for, and understanding that it's not about you, it's about them. So that's kind of like sales 101. But if you're not used to it, and you're not comfortable getting out of your zone of comfort, I like to say you need to become really comfortable being uncomfortable. Because there will always be some level of discomfort when you're trying something new or testing something. And so when I went to talk to these people, I I was gaining skills. I was improving my skill set and I was listening and I was really there to solve a problem for them. It wasn't just, of course, it was about me. I wanted to see if I had this... um, concept and it would work and it would work as a business but it needed to solve a pain point for them a problem and I needed to make them aware of the problem because many of them weren't thinking about it so they needed time to process that right so I think I think now when we fall into the emails and the texts and all of this stuff all these different ways of communicating we're missing valuable opportunities that could actually move things forward faster if we just met people. Um, But that being said, met them in the right environments. But how do you know what the right environment is, right? You can't know what the right environment is until you test a bunch of environments. So I'm guessing you had some crash and burn experiences early on. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. Yes. I mean, you know, like where you walk in and your mouth is dry and you feel like there's, you know, stuff coming out of your nose. <laughs> if your skirt is still pulled up from when you use the loo. I mean, you know, just like fall on your face really bad. Bridget, Bridget you know. Jones's diary moments. Exactly, which is why she's so brilliant at that, you know. Um, she's brilliant at that. And so, yeah, absolutely. So you... It's not about you. So what if you have a bad interaction? So what if you have a shitty, you know, interview? Um, I've had people hand me back my music in an audition once, actually. We're looking for singers. I mean, cool. yep. I mean, you can't get chopped at the knees much worse than that, right? So these, these store owners probably seemed far more humane. Oh, oh my God. Compared to auditions? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And they'd say, I'm busy now. And you'd have to, I'd say, okay, great. Is it okay if I come back tomorrow? You know, if I, or can I come back? I'd like to come back tomorrow or Thursday, which is better. That's just a sales technique, mm-hmm. you know, and I would do that. Um, but I think meeting people and then that's a direct sales kind of interaction. But if you go to events, like I go to uh, the events for B Corporation, I've invite, been invited to the Social Venture Institute, you know, for a Social Venture Circle. So those are my compadres. Those are already people who were already on the same, same wavelength. Um, but you can learn a lot talking to someone face-to-face, I think, more than you can learn emailing and texting emailing and texting is when you already know someone or you're just trying to coordinate a way to to meet up yes but but you can really get a sense of someone who they are and how you can assist them i mean you're there yes again you're there for you but you're there for them absolutely and you have to listen and if they are totally turn you off and blow you off um great Listen to why. You may not agree, and you may not like them at all. You're like, ew, I'm not going to be with them ever again. But they're actually a really it's valuable good source information. of insight. Yeah, it's valuable. And so what? You're not going to see them again. True story. Yeah. True story. And also, there's also this whole idea of when you go to events, don't just go for a single purpose. You're being woven into a community. Right, you, you're weaving yourself, I should say, into a community of people, and every thread is important. And you never know when that person that you were talking to to your right is someone who you can introduce to the person on your left. And it may not be at that moment. Right. I, th- I think this is something I recorded a special sort of virtual panel on mentorship and sponsorship. And this is a point that came up in that conversation. I believe it was with Aaron Barra, um, who's a professor at Berkeley Music and really a pioneer in the electronic music space. Mm-hmm. And it came up where it was people going into networking events or any sort of meeting with this expectation, like what they're going to extract from it, what they're going to get from it. And to your point, you know, it really should be about how can I plug in and be a part of this? And what do I have that other people might need? Right. What value can I bring? And actually, I, I love that you were the extractive because I think we are, many of us, not all, moving away from an extractive culture to a more inclusive, collaborative culture. And I mean that in, in lifestyle as well as in business. 
We've yeah, been let's in, not talk about politics. I feel yeah, like it hasn't quite permeated yeah, there yet. Yeah, well, that's going to work itself out, we hope, right? Yes. <laughs> but this whole idea of always extracting, I mean, just think about um, what we've done in terms of our energy sources, right? Absolutely. We're always extracting, and we go in for me, 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 and uh, the financial markets, me versus we. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do what you need to do to take care of yourself, but you should be very uh, aware Okay, I'm very aware that I never want to live or be part of a culture where I need to live behind gates, where I have to, you know, pay to go somewhere for clean air and clean water. Right? I think there's certain things that should be available to everybody no matter their status. I mean, I could talk for I could talk forever on status too, but you know, I've, that's sort of like a core belief that I've always had: I clean air and clean water for everyone. And I think that goes to wanting to work collaboratively uh, with people to make sure we all rise, as opposed to um, towards a greater good, as opposed to extract from my own good. Very important, and I hear you mention that core value. And it struck me really funny, Sharon. I totally believe in that core value. I am kindred in that belief. I've never actually articulated it for myself. It's, it, it landed on me really strange because I think, isn't that the most obvious thing? Doesn't everyone believe that? Yeah. And I guess the answer really with how we're treated in our environment is probably not. Or they haven't examined it, right? I mean, I think it's really, really important um, to know what your core values are and to access them regularly and to check in with them regularly. And sometimes you don't know what they are, but you know what the opposite is and you know what you don't want. Yes. You know, and that's actually something that in my book, um, about tiny business, the magic of tiny business, I say at the very beginning, if you can get really clear on these things, um, either from a, a negative space perspective or from a positive space perspective, you can then curate your how in a much friendlier environment now, business environment, but back then not so friendly. You know what I'm saying? You really have to, I love the idea of design thinking. I've, I've also been diving into that, um, that you can create the ideas in the environment that you want. It has to be extremely intentional, and you have to understand that it's also extremely incremental. That yes. bit, you know, step by inch by inch, step by step, Niagara Falls, <laughs> <laughs> which I've never been to. But, you know, you will get there. But it's about knowing that. And so if you just said you've never articulated that for yourself, but you heard me say it, so you mirror what I said. Well, something like that would happen in a conversation, let's say at an event or a conference. Yes, especially Which if you're meeting like-minded people yeah, and yeah. showing up open to not just force talking about business with someone. Right. Right. It's not just about business. It's about life. It's about your life. And it's about creating relationships, not just diving for business. And, you know, 
it doesn't even have to be a like environment. You could go to some straight up business conference where someone says, oh, I don't care if the ocean is dirty and disgusting. I got my place in the Caribbean. And you're like, whoa, I, that's not what I think or feel or want. You know what I'm saying? It can come from the negative, too. It can come from either way. Um, but it goes to the things, at least for me, that I want to protect or work to uh, conserve. Clean parks. That's where I was coming at it, right? You don't want to go into a park and see needles and bags. Because that's how those parks were in Washington Heights when I, my child was young. And I was just going to say, it was a me perspective with a we, you know, overarching we. Or a me. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned something interesting to me. You said you were, you need to be clear on the why and you can curate the how. That will get easier mm -hmm. if you if you know that why. Yeah. You were really fierce, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think from the beginning about what you wanted your definition of work to look like. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> the funny thing is I started... EcoBank so that I could support myself so and my family so that I could um, go back to acting. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, nobody actually told me that starting a business, and back then it wasn't called being an entrepreneur, it was called starting a business. Um, nobody ever told me that starting a business while having young children uh, probably would limit my ability to go back <laughs> into regular rehearsal periods. Um However, I did that for a while, um, overlapping and just whatever. Um, but I was really specific that family came first. I, I felt like I, I wanted kids, although I have to say at first I didn't know that I did. I walked around going, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm pregnant. And I was like, oh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> um, so I, I, if I was going to have them, I wanted to spend time with them, as much time as I could. But I also knew that I needed to contribute to the income for the family. My husband was a freelance musician and I was a freelance actress, you know, and um, I had that job job, which I, I quit to do eco bags. So um, I had some pretty big responsibilities, but I figured if I could work a normal day, there I am with normal again, but what does normal mean? The store opens and then the store closes. You know, you don't see many retailers hanging out in their store at 12 o'clock at night, right? Well, and that almost sounds abnormal by today's yeah. standards. Yeah. That if I started at a certain time and I finished at a certain time, uh, that I'd have my nights free and I wouldn't work on weekends. So this, again, all started pre-cell phones. But I carried it over into the whole cell phone, internet world, which is now, because I really strengthened my practice of managing my work hours when I was starting, right? I do believe that if you say, I'm only going to work to 5.30 or whatever time you set. And of course, this is different for every industry. I mean, clearly, if you're in real estate, unless you want to be completely disruptive, you have to be available on weekends. Um, so you just have to find when you want your work to end and your other part of your life to to have, you know, full time and stop and, and listen to yourself. And what it's going to, what it does is, is it forces efficiencies. It also forces uh, the nice to do versus need to do. You know, we're always busy doing all these multiple, you know, lots and lots of tasks. Well, some of them don't need to be done. Right? Absolutely. You need some, some ruthless them, prioritization sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to look at that pile on your desk and put it all into recycling and say, well, if they really wanted me, they'll call me again. <laughs> 
you know, not advise anything having to do with cash flow, pay attention to anything having to do with legal, pay attention to, you know, there's certain things, there's obviously a list there. Um, but you, you force priorities. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of religious uh, cultures that take like the Sabbath off, they stop and redirect their attention for that 24 hour period. I wanted 48 hours <laughs> and every night. I like so, your style. Yeah. But I mean, I, I also had to for my own sanity because I had, you know, starting a business is not easy. And anybody who tells you that it is easy, well. Run. <laughs> run. It's not easy no matter where you start. You may have early successes, but there's always uh, hills, uh, you know, mountains and valleys. And, um, if you stick to a working schedule, just as if you were a pianist, you wouldn't play all day long. You would practice for three or four hours. If you owned a store, you might be open max 10 hours a day, right? But hopefully you can get out, out of the store at some point during the day or, or you know, have help at the end. Whatever it is, right? Stick to your schedule and create your work in those hours. And know that when you go home, you're really only draining your battery if you're sitting there doing, you know, your books or whatever, if you're doing it all the time. Now, if you're doing it some of the time and you have to, okay, fine. Make it the exception, not the rule. I say if you can stick to your schedule about 80% of the time, you're good. 20% of the time, there's going to be major disasters, you know, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I could go through a million things, including, you know, uh, product that gets stuck on boats during the Persian Gulf War and, and you know, screaming clients. And there's always going to be something, right? So yeah. you can't you can't control it, but you can set your intention and you can stick with your intention as best you can. And then when it kind of totally falls apart and your heart is racing and your stress level is up, just, I don't know, be kind to yourself. I always say take get a glass of water, sit down, regroup, go for a walk. It's not worth getting sick over. No. it. And I learned that lesson the hard way in my 20s. It is not worth getting sick over. It, you know, it. I was working in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy and running around with the most irritable bowels in New York City. And it just, it wasn't worth it. So, and I, I th I'm glad you brought up this, this notion of 80-20-2. Because I think to any perfectionists or type A's or rule followers listening, you know, putting that kind of rule in place and then following it, but not being able to be flexible enough under more extreme circumstances, like that in and itself can be a huge cause of stress, right? Like if you, if you set the bar at you are going to leave work at 5 or 5.30 every day and one day a week, you know, there was something calamitous happening that you felt like I should stay an extra hour and deal with this because it'll be way less detrimental to everyone and everything around me if I just handle this today. Like, that's okay. Yes. Yeah. But are you staying till 10 o'clock at work, you know, or, you know, in my 20s, are you still working at three in the morning and sleeping on a conference room floor? Because right. Well, something you, needs to get done. <laughs> right. Well, you were in a stress industry anyway. Anything having to do around money and finances is already stressful. <laughs> oh, right? absolutely. And then Everybody's people fighting the, over the scraps of it that are left yeah, after a bankruptcy. It's horrible. 
it's horrible it's horrible yeah yeah you just have to be kind to yourself and but there's reality checks it's not just about you again right it's it's about the whole ecosystem of you which includes a lot of different things and i mean at least in my business though there's there's different businesses right if i always like to say we're not running blood no you know no we're, we're not. not we're not dealing in kidney transplants you know we actually have a product that doesn't go bad it's not even we're not even dealing with refrigeration you know <laughs> so every industry is different every business is different um you have to acknowledge the pain points in your business and build structures to have around those pain points so that you have plans and you but you only know that when something fails right system fail okay let's build a structure so the next time it fails at least we have this but you know the next time it fails something else is going to happen and you're not going to have that um, but at least you have some level of preparedness and um, this is a good time for me to talk about vacations because I really held vacations in a very sort of high altar way yes never they thought. definitely seemed sacred in yeah. terms of reading they were the book and I actually just found a picture of a vacation with my kids from years ago um, when I was going through photographs. Um, and I tell people, you know, we camped out on my sister's property on Martha's Vineyard. They might get this sort of uh, gauzy, romantic view. Well, I found the picture of the tent in the massive puddle on the dirt <laughs> outside the construction zone that was called my sister's house that was getting built. <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, literally the, the, the tents, because we, you know, we didn't have a lot of financial resources. In fact, we were really strapped most of the time when my kids were little and the business was starting and my husband was now starting to teach. But I held vacations in that very, like nothing was going to mess with my vacation. And I learned early on that you cannot schedule anything technical to be done within two weeks of when you're leaving. Now, you pick your time period, but I learned two weeks. Because if you do, do any kind of technical shift or any kind of shift at this point with a business uh, in that two-week pre-holiday time frame, something's going to F up. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to have to be on the phone correcting it. So I build a bunker, a moat around <laughs> those vacation times. I think this is so important because I feel like in nine years of listening to frazzled female type A's conversations, this is something that I think people are not talking about enough, where there is this intense pressure that we put on ourselves because we see everybody else put in all this intense pressure on themselves to do more, to 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 make things faster, to you know, launch, and then I'll go on vacation the week after like a major launch. I see these kinds of things, like how we put this pressure on ourselves, but do it in a way that it's a scenario that we could not possibly come out of unscathed. Yeah, we set ourselves up for failure all the time. I mean, this is the time of year when everybody's always talking about, um, you know, New Year's resolutions. Yes. Um, same thing. It's the same thing. We set up ourselves up for too much we set ourselves up for things we cannot possibly accomplish and we know it and then we get mad when we fail or we don't know it but we think we're bionic and we think 
that the laws of physics and time don't apply to us necessarily. Yeah. Right, not me. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get a cold or like what happened to me this fall, like my back totally spasmed and went out. Oh. I don't know how, I had a concussion. Why? So I spent like six weeks like not being able to look at computer screens. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, there are these moments that, that you... But for the day-to-day and the week-to-week and the month-to-month, I think that we, especially as women, but I think this can also relate to men, really need to rethink productivity and what is actually possible in a in a day and what you can actually do a good job mm-hmm. in a day. Mm-hmm. And to prioritize it so that it meets your goals. Uh, so you have to be really clear on what your goals are. Because there's a lot of ways to get to Woodstock, right? <laughs> exactly. A lot of routes. Um, and you can only do that if you really set, you not only set up your goals, but again, you get back to your priorities, which is really your core values, which is what's most important to you. I mean, it's always vexed me that our culture is all about more, 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 faster, 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 faster. And then for a very simplistic um, example, we leave the lights on. The water <laughs> runs. Uh, we run to the store three times instead of going once. We're using, we have to work to create the income, to have the cash, to be able to do those things. Well, if you're more thoughtful about those things to begin with, you actually can work less. 100% you know what I'm true. I, like, I want to start clapping, but I'm sure that will like drive the listeners nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean... I mean, the bigger thing is always driven me crazy, and it's, I think, a huge opportunity, Um, although I guess you can do it with a rental car, and now they have all these car-sharing programs, but, you know, in the time when my kids were growing up, a lot of people had these massive SUVs, you know, which drove me insane, because they really didn't need all that space, except for maybe twice a year for the trips, the family trips. Yes. Of Of course, I'm not talking about snow mover, you know, snow and all that sort of thing. If you needed it for snow, then you, you don't have to listen to this. But I mean, but there's smaller cars that have good snow tires too. And there's other reasons that people bought those things. But my point is just on a, I'm trying to use this as an example of, of waste, really. You know, if you have to work really hard to make the payments on that car or to buy that car, why not get the less expensive car or the smaller car that uses less gas, costs less, and when you go on the trips, rent the car that you need for the trips. If you do the math, a lot of the times you come out ahead. Absolutely. It's just a different approach. I mean, I actually, like right now in this time and day, the way that things are going with cars and all that stuff, I don't know if it will work out. But if you apply that same kind of thinking to anything you do, um, when I lived in the city, I had a car. And we kept it in a garage. We were in Washington Heights, so it was 150 bucks a month. But again, this is, you know, in the way back. Yeah, it's probably... Three hundred and fifty dollars yeah. a month now, Whatever. at least. Yeah, and um, Blake actually, even back in nineteen eighty six, had a client of his on the Upper East Side who he played piano for, who paid already a thousand dollars for his garage. Right? He actually was one of the producers of Woodstock. But anyway, that's a side note. <laughs> um, so we figured out that we we're like, wait a minute, we're garaging the car. We're only using it on some weekends. It's costing less money to garage it, to repair it. Blah 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 blah. What would it cost if we only rented a car? Then we got rid of the car and we rented a car. Yes. We, we simply did the math. And this is something that comes up in in my world on the health and lifestyle strategy side 
around hiring a housekeeper. And there's a lot of clients that I've had over the years where keeping a home environment to where it was at a place where it didn't feel stressful. Like they were Mm -hmm. coming home from work. They were leaving to go to work and like look, scanning around the house thinking like, ugh, I'm going to have to come home and deal with this. And then walking in the door when they came home and like, ugh, this house is a mess. And just feeling like their home environment was draining and they were financing that bad energy, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were paying that out every day. And I remember with three or four clients over the past handful of years, you know, having the conversation and just sort of like, okay, if you don't have time to do it, no one else in your house wants to do it, it would become your job to nag everyone else to do it. Like, what are some other alternatives? And hiring a cleaning person always was on the list and then immediately met with, I can't do that. I'm not that type of person. And it's like, what type of person? And so we'd have a lot of conversations about like, hang on, there's some narrative here that may be not quite true. And then when we actually started looking at the numbers, we're like, okay, how many hours a week do you spend cleaning? How many hours do you spend thinking about hating cleaning? You know, how many hours do you spend just fixating on this problem? And then asking like, okay, like, can we talk salary? And, you know, usually by this point, I've had a pretty good relationship with a client. So we we kind of break down there. Okay, this is what you make in a year. It's divided by 2000. Mm -hmm. That's essentially your per hour. How many hours are you financing this not cleaning? And Mm -hmm. how much would it cost to actually hire a cleaning lady? And when you lay out that math, sometimes it was it was such a no brainer. Yeah, I do the math. Yeah, all the time. And actually, last night, I walked into my house and it just been cleaned. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> this is so worth it. <laughs> this is so worth it. And I only have someone once a month because I don't even have kids anymore. So it's like, it doesn't, Yeah, it's you not know. getting trashed in like 48 hours. Trashed. But I had that whole conversation actually with my husband when the kids were little. And I was like, he was like, no, they need to learn how to, um, you know, do this and, and tasks and everything like that. And I said, well, you know what? They can be responsible for their rooms, but I'm not nagging them to do the stairs. Yep. So, I mean, so everybody. Common areas got cleaned. Yeah, yeah, because it is worth, I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that, it is worth your psychic energy. Yes. You know, what do you need to not be drained? Because really, I think, and this is a new thing I'm sort of playing with, I'm going to put it in the realm of women. Um, it doesn't mean that men aren't, but women are. We're shock absorbers, right? <laughs> and emotional load carriers. We're, we're shock absorbers. We absorb from the kids, from our spouses, from our partners, from our parents, from our employers. And you got to go somewhere to recharge. Absolutely. You know, even shocks, shocks, they run down and you got to get them repaired. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's like a never ending thing. And, um, and if, if coming home and having someone else make your bed and picked out, like last night, I love the people who clean my house. And, and plus, that's what their business is. She, I can't even get her for an extra day. They're so busy. Um, <laughs> you know, I have, I have to beg. No, I really, I can't get her even another day in the month if I wanted to. You know, they they found sheets and they made it really beautiful with a color coordination I would never have done. Absolutely. that They're paying attention to those details. I'm not paying attention to those details. And also my house, um, this actually... Um, trips into another subject, which is it needs to be perfect. For me, it doesn't need to be perfect. <laughs> you are Nothing. talking to the right 
tribe of listeners if we're yeah. going to talk about being perfect. It doesn't need to be perfect. It needs to be good enough and go. Tell me more about that. Where where have you encountered that in your life? Or how did you come to this conclusion? Oh, my God. Well, if you wait for ideas to be perfect, by the time that you're out there, you haven't tested it and someone else is out there doing it, right? Or you've lost your energy because you're just spending on making it perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, I say get out there with what you've got. Start talking about it. Generate excitement. People people want other people to succeed, mostly. Yes, that is true. And for the people who don't or have, well, did you think of this? Why didn't you think of that? Listen to them, but don't absorb their energy. <laughs> Put up your Teflon shield, you know, um, let them ping off of you. Um, but if you wait for something to be perfect, you may never get started. You know, it's the story of um, a friend of mine's father who really wanted to paint all his life, wanted to paint, wanted to paint, but, you know, had responsibilities and stuck with his job and built the studio, but never went in it, never painted, wanted to paint, wanted to paint, finally retired, sat in the studio, and didn't know what to paint. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's like do a little bit every day. You know, move the ball forward a little bit every, every day. Um, what I mean by that, too, is you don't have to have the perfect setup if you want to write. Sit in a chair, your butt's in a chair, get a pad, write, (laughs) you know, 10 minutes a day. After a while, you build a muscle, and then you want to go 15 or 20 minutes. You know, if you've got an idea, you know, process it, challenge it, take it out into the world. I'm not saying, you know, you have to take it to everybody, but get started because you don't know where it's going to go once you once you start. I mean, if you're nervous about getting started, that's a whole other conversation. But the perfect thing, you could drive yourself mad, even trying to find the perfect shoes for the perfect outfit. You know, you're up against the wall. I mean, this happened to me last year. My girlfriend said, that dress looks great on you. Now you're going to have to get a, a pair of nude ch- uh, pumps. Well, I was in California. I came back to New York. No one has nude colored shoes in February in New York at all. I mean, and if you know where to go, tell me, uh, because <laughs> I couldn't find them. And I looked and it's not like I looked crazy because I was like, okay, this one store, if they don't have them, if they don't have them in the sacks, they're not going to have them in the world. Um, so that was my point. I just happened to be near sacks. I walked in, checked it out. They didn't have it. So I settled. I settled with another pair of shoes. But guess what? It wasn't my wedding. It didn't matter. I had shoes on. Yes. That's a great, it's a great example. And yeah, there's there's a project that I'm working on. It's not behind the scenes. It's out there, and I'm sharing it on social media and things like that, but it's called the 33K Task List Project, mm-hmm. where I'm trying to collect 33,000 handwritten tasks or to-do lists from women uh-huh. in the hopes to eventually upcycle them into some sort of art installation, which I'm still, because of the collection process, moving at a snail's pace, like... I'm letting that just kind of be and not over fixating on what, what I, I think sure. that needs to be. Also, it keeps my type A in recovery in this project. Right. But it's been funny because it's, it's something, you know, I pick up and, and I'm working on pretty consistently, but it's something I don't have the time to devote to it that I want to all the time, right? Like, it's a fun yeah. project. If I could work on it 40 hours a week, that would be great. But that's mm-hmm. not totally realistic at this point in my life. And so I think for a while, 
I was putting a ton of pressure on myself, right? Like, you know, I was thinking about how could I make this project more contagious. I was thinking about like these bigger plans, like bigger things that I could do. And then I realized like I could just start solving small problems. And, you know, this is where the design thinking has kind of come in, rapid prototyping things, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and rapid is relative in this project because it just happens a little at a time. But just okay, every time I talk to someone that's interested about this, then they forget, right? They go back to their day and they forget. So I started making handmade envelopes from old magazines that we had read and would otherwise probably just recycle or maybe I'd cut up into some collage project. And okay, that made that a little bit better. At least now they're self-addressed and people just need to have to put put their lists in an envelope and seal it up and put a stamp on it. Mm-hmm. There we go. Okay, that's that's kind of working, but it's not accelerating collection by any stretch. And then, you know, over the past year or two, just looking at little tiny things like, okay, that didn't work. How could I tweak that piece? And, you know, what I've come to for this year is I have certain people in my life that work in busy offices with lots of women or a school or they run a fitness studio where women are coming to offload stress and are willing to help me. And so like this winter break between the holidays, Um, I had a friend donate her old mailbox that was sitting in her garage and I have one in my garage and those two are going to get painted and they're going to be like the flat Stanley of mailboxes. Mm -hmm. And I guess I share this because I think people need to hear like, yes, I have this end goal of I want to collect 33,000 handwritten task lists, right? And I want to use them in a certain way. But if I focused on only that as a milestone every day, I'd make myself mental. And I, yeah. I did at points make myself mental over it. Well, well that's where I get, I always, I like, I, I like to get quippy. I say go incremental, not mental. <laughs> yes. I actually circled that in like a giant circle. And I think there's a star <laughs> yeah. next to it in the book. Yeah. Well, it's, it is true because you can chip away at something. And, and uh, for example, we decided about two weeks ago, my husband and I, that we wanted to make sure that at any point we could move out of our house in three days. <laughs> why? I, I was going to say, you have to explain that one. Yeah. Why? Because we saw neighbors who had to move um, just pack and pack and pack for like a week. And then their their moving day got closer and then they just started throwing shit into boxes. Right. Yep. So we we lug a lot of stuff from point A to point B that we don't really need, want, or no longer resonate with us. Of course, we have lots of memorabilia. We have tons of photos. But do we need four photos of the same thing from that weekend, uh, you know, upstate New York? No. So we went into rapid clean. <laughs> but But what it's been is it's been incremental. A box a night. You know, of I mean, first we did the big stuff. That was actually a whole day, and then we went it all to we had an entire carload uh, for Goodwill. Um, you know, duplicates, things that just come in that you just you don't pay attention to. You just if you have a basement or a garage or a corner or a cupboard or a draw, it goes into there, right? Yes. And so every time you open something up, you're like, oh, I can't deal with this, and you close it. Well, wouldn't it be cool if you opened up the sewing draw and only sewing things were in there? <laughs> how novel right <laughs> right 
so that's what we did. So, so that whole idea of going incrementally, that you can chip away at something and get to your stated goal. Not to say that it, those draws won't fill up again. It's all a process, right? But things happen along the way. You can set the pace. You're the one in charge. And you can direct the how you're doing it. And you can test as you go along. I totally... And you will get where you're going ultimately. You just have to trust that you will. And I'm not saying that you won't fail along the way either. Oh, uh, it, and I'm not saying just blind spots. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? You know, really it. Work it. Yeah, but yeah, but you have to you have to take the actions. You can't just think it. I mean, I, I hope we're being or overthink like, it or overthink it. You have to take the actions. You have to have intention and you have to take an action. You know what? It's basic one one acting is what it is. Maybe that's where it all came from for me because I, you know, was an actress. Break you it down. To, How does you have to? Yeah, you have to break it down. You have to have an intention. Well, what do you mean by... And you can't play happy. You can't. I mean, you can't be happy. You have to play happy. So how do you play happy? You're, you're doing something. You're in, a, you're in a relationship. You're getting a balloon. You know what I'm saying? There's an action associated with that. Yes. And you know immediately like what the energetic hit to is, right? Absolutely. Like I think people get really caught up like, well, if I make this experiment and my ho- hypothesis is is this, and it doesn't go that way, then people get down on themselves. But that is still great information. Not only do you know now how it didn't work, right? Like, I think Edison has, like, some quotes around this, where he's like, you know, I I eradicated, you know, 1,000 ways things don't work. Yeah. But it also, yeah. you get that that energetic hit as well. Like, you know, like, inside, like, we as women under all the dust, under all the clutter, under all the like calendar and schedule and and all the other things that distract us, there is a deep sense of knowing. And when you take action, you can tweak that nerve a little. You can tone that muscle a little. And to your point of we know, we all know, we all know all of this. We don't pay attention to it most of the time. Yeah, or, or we because we can't because explain we have other it. Things, yeah, or we have <laughs> other things to do. So my challenge to everybody who's listening and my daily challenge to myself is to listen. That's all I'm going to say is to listen. You know, some people call it um, active listening. You know, there's all these words around yes. it now in business. But um, it's really listen more than talk, control, you know, just listen. Listen to yourself and listen to your body, your mind, your heart. Listen. Absolutely. And don't, and don't run over it. I mean, because we're asked to run over it all the time, not just in business, but, you know, again, mothers, sisters, husbands, children, <laughs> <laughs> employees, team. I mean, we're always asked to do that. So, but you have to, you have to connect with yourself in order you can, for you to connect outside. So it's like kind of like it's very Buddhist, but go in to go out. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And I would also challenge people to take everything that you just said and record it. Right? Like one of the things I think that has helped me find success in solving problems with people, because that's essentially what I did as a strategist. I just mm-hmm. got down into the weeds with them and looked at ways we could solve problems. And and something, you know, recently 
where I've been thinking about like where my my work and my work day is not fitting me somehow. Mm-hmm. I've been really actively listening and not just in words, but also like how do I feel about certain mm-hmm. things? And it's been amazing just in a few weeks time. I've committed to recording just simply even in a few words every night before I go to bed. When did I feel most in flow today? And when did I feel like my flow was janky today? Oh, I love that. You know, I have a friend of mine who does um, what she's thankful for every night. I think when you set up a practice, that you, what you're essentially saying is you're setting up a practice. You're, you're setting up a time when you do something consistently. And so that over time, you build that muscle. Yes. And for you me, know, these like, you are, also see data, like you see yeah, trends. You're like, oh, exactly. wow. Every time I feel right. like I'm in flow, it's when I'm interacting with another person. Yeah. It almost yeah. doesn't even matter what the activity is, but it's right. And so what, what the data gives you then is, you know, what track you're on or what track you want to be on. You know what I'm saying? It, it, you can, and you can see, I like the way you use success because it's not like someone else's idea of success. It's your micro success in deciding you're going to practice something and then sticking to it. Like I'm, I'm currently on day 12 of meditating every day. Um, I know, right? It's great so, from day 197 here. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I decided that I'm going to stick with this, uh, in a continuous, unbroken, uh, you know, stream. Um, and I'm going to see how far I get. Because before I was sort of lackadaisical until I said, I'm going to make this a practice. I was like, oh, I'm going to meditate. Oh, I don't feel like, whatever. You know, <laughs> until I decided to commit to it. Um, it's the Margaret Mead quote, right? Until you decide to commit something, you're kind of like wobbly. Absolutely. Once you, once you decide to commit to something, you will move forward or you will find success or you will find yourself even if you don't want to use any kind of adjective that gets it gives it a plus or minus you will be in a new place yes or a different place how about it's not even new you just won't be in the same place how about that <laughs> you know you got to stay away from all of the um the modifiers yes sharon here's a question because i feel like i'm always flinging questions, one, from my own curiosity, but then two, trying to filter everything through all of the information and conversations that I've had with listeners. And I'm hearing you talk about like being able to have this kind of flexibility, right? And I'm thinking, if I was listening and I had a boss and I... I'm hearing all these things that Kara and Sharon are talking about and are able to sort of integrate in their days. And that's easy for them to say because they're both the boss of things. What do you have to say to those listeners? I have to say that I actually just said this to my, my team the other day, please take tea time. (laughs) (laughs) So what I was saying to them is I want you to go out for lunch. I want you to have, a specified time every day where you say, I'm going to sit here and have a hot cup of tea. You know, you can find in your workday a three to five minute stretch if and more, you know, where you can make it about you. And if you can't do it in your workday because you feel like you just can't, you know, there could be a million reasons, then do you, do you before you arrive. 
you know i if you if you drive to work park in the furthest parking spot and walk the rest of the way if you can't walk because that's just something you can't do um sit in your car and put a timer on your phone use your phone for something good and put a three-minute timer on and just sit there and breathe you know they're find what will work for you in possibly the tiniest, smallest increment, the tiny, I like using tiny because tiny, it, what, what tiny is all about is intention. It's not about size, small is size, tiny is intention. Find the tiniest thing you can do for you and commit to doing it as a practice, which means you do it every day, every other day, whatever you decide to do. And if you decide to do it every day and you don't do it every day, and but you can, you feel like that's too much pressure, make it once a week. But make it the intention of doing it and then the intention of making it a practice will create a shift, guaranteed. I love this idea of just taking even a few minutes before the workday if you can't find it in the workday. Because there are definitely days where, you know, I'm running from call to call to call to call Mm -hmm. and things like that. And it's I have to throw my normal routine out the window but there are, you know, there are also certain non-negotiables. Like I rarely, if ever, schedule anything before 10 a.m. now that involves other people. Exactly. That's because, what I'm talking about. Because yep. I want to have that flexibility before 10 a.m. to make sure, do I get a chance, do I get a chance to meditate, which is usually done first thing? Mm-hmm. Do I get a chance to have breakfast? Do I get a chance, if the rest of my day is about to go haywire, maybe I don't get a full you know, hour long walk in, like I try to do, you know, most days, maybe I get a half an hour in, but I got it done before the rest of the day goes crazy. And I know I've set myself up to not be brain dead at 3pm. Right. And if you have, you know, like I had two small kids, right. And a husband who was freelance slash, you know, then became a teacher. And, and I had people coming in and out of the house to help me with the kids when I was working, because I didn't find that I could work and do you know, childcare at the same time, especially when they were little. I don't know that I had the same amount of time. I mean, in fact, I know I didn't when I had kids. But I found time by parking in the furthest part, you know, parking space from the grocery store. (laughs) There's a million ways to do it. You have to decide what will work for you just to give you those moments that you say, those are mine. Absolutely. You know, and I totally get it with kids and husbands and spouses and partners or whoever. You just, you know, you can always find a minute, you know. And once you found a minute and you feel comfortable with that, you, I bet you can find two, you know, three. Sometimes, you know, half an hour is a big chunk. So don't start with a half an hour. That's a really big chunk. But you wouldn't, you know, well, you wouldn't expect yourself to go on a 300-mile um, a bike ride if you didn't ride a bike without training, same Absolutely. thing. You know, yes. and I actually did that. I, I went on a 300-mile bike ride. I had never ridden a bike more than a few miles. I had to get on that bike, you know, for weeks and incrementally build up the strength. And <laughs> it's really more about your butt. <laughs> <laughs> Those, my sits bones heard 300 miles, and I was like, yeah, eh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the tip there is to bring a, a couple different pairs of those padded pants that pad you in different places so you spread around the hurt anyway um (laughs) it's important for women but but i could never have done if i hadn't incrementally approached the goal yes 
And Sharon, you definitely have felt pressures along the way, oh. right? Like in reading your story, oh, yeah. there is this idea like, you know, you felt really phenomenal pain points, right? Like the Oprah pain point. And then like on the other side in the book, you talk about like how to weather economic downturns, how to handle competition, you know, how to consider all of these things. One thing that I I feel like I need to ask because it's something that the people aren't talking about enough is this notion of quitting with a capital Q and quitting with a lowercase Q. Yeah. And I I feel like this relates to self-care. Can you talk about what your experience with quitting was like and how people can dial into what the right type of quitting to apply is in that moment? Sure. So, I mean, my business didn't really take off until about 14 years in, which is like, you you what? (laughs) And then shortly thereafter, had a major hit with the recession. But anyway, um, I, two times, but one time notably, I just said, you know what? I'm working every day at this, and I am not seeing... Not so much the financial return, although that was tied to it. People are just not waking up to this concept of reusable bags. This is They don't care that I'm producing things responsibly um, and sustainably. I mean, that was like not even on the charts forever. And they don't, this whole conversation is not taking off. And when it does take off, they, they plumb me for ideas and then they go find a cheaper solution, right? So I was sort mm-hmm. of like, why am I doing this? And I quit. I literally turned my computer off and said, no, I, no, I'm going to look for another job. I cannot do this. Because I, I, had, I had a nut that I had to make in terms of income. Luckily, we had still, at this point, we had kept our, our overhead really low, which I think is really important, um, is to know what you need and to keep it as low as possible so that you know you're high and you're low. Anyway, I quit. I started looking for jobs. Um, I was just... Like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to look for a job. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You're like, what am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do? Who's what am I hire me? Yeah, I have no skills. I, like, I, don't, I really don't want to have two weeks of vacation. That's going to kill me. Um, but I went out there. I got an interview somewhere, and I went out, and I did the whole, you know, getting dressed for an interview thing. And I put on back then nylon, sorry, um, and pumps and the whole, like, I, you know, I never felt right in those clothes um, and I went out and I showed up the interview place and um, there were a few other applicants sitting in the uh, lobby clearly. And I walked into the building. I mean, when I walked into the building, then up into the office space, I realized the windows didn't open. It was one of those places. Oh. And I sat down and they gave me a piece of paper and said, um, thank you for coming. You just fill this out. And um, so-and-so is interviewing. And, I started to fill it out, and I was like, no, I can't do this. I can't do this either. <laughs> I realized that I needed to be more in charge of my time and that this would take that from me, that this could potentially bring me more money, but that not enough to make me jump over that threshold. And it forced me to evaluate what I had already and where I could improve what I had to reach my goals instead of going outside and attaching myself to a larger corporate entity. And mind you, 
I wasn't looking for a super high level job. So that this is again, all pre LinkedIn and all that stuff, sort of thing. So I think things have changed now, but I just couldn't see myself working for someone else. And so I, I didn't in that time though, however, so I decided I, I unquit quitting. <laughs> no, or I quit quitting. I quit my quit. <laughs> and I went back to what I was doing. But I did actually find a part-time job um, with a friend of mine who um, needed someone to help uh, process credit cards and whatnot for his uh, company. And I did that for a bunch of weeks and started doing some, some work for him uh, to fill in on the financial side. And then I got back to what I was really meant to do. So it gave me perspective. You know, um, and, you know, you think, oh, I can't stop. Well, you know what? You can stop. A day is not good. If a day, being away from your, your computer for a day for your business kills your business, then you don't have much of a business. Exactly. <laughs> you know. And right. you let yourself feel some real discomfort, right? Like, I can only imagine you're walking into this building, you're seeing all the signs. I remember when I was still in finance, going to interview at this company and I'll I'll leave it a nameless entertainment company that you would think would be so cool. And then <laughs> I always was mindful to make sure any place that I was going to get hired it was give me a tour of where I'm going to be sitting or you know where who and where I'm going to be working with. Right. You don't have to make it a big production. We can just kind of walk through, but I'd love to see the space for a few minutes and and just see and I remember this company that you would think would be wonderful. And it was dark. Everyone was in cubicles. No one, no one was smiling. Right. Everyone looked miserable. It was, um, I believe it was suits and tie for the, the finance staff. Or it was, it was definitely like on the more dressed end of business casual. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this looks like hell on earth down here. This looks like mm -hmm. some sort of purgatory. And it's really uncomfortable. I imagine you can tell me if I'm wrong in your experience when you're having kind of like that internal nervous breakdown in the middle of like a, a totally different situation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you're in this interview and I mean, did you. Well, I didn't even get to the. No, I didn't even get to the interview. I left. You did. You were like, yeah. I already know this is a fit. I don't Let need me not this. waste your time. I don't need this. Yeah, I don't need this. <laughs> I don't need this. But not everybody wants to have their own business or, you know, uh, business or being an entrepreneur. They, they want the comfort of that steady check and reporting in. So um, hats off to you all. I, I can't do it. Um, but that's what I found out for me. Yes. Yeah, this is not a bastardization of no. having a nine-to-five job. It's making sure that you have the right work for you. Yeah. And also, I have to say, I was just recently at a family reunion. And of the cousins, how many of us are there? Two, four, six, seven. Yeah. Six are self-employed. Wow. So it runs in the family. Or self. Yeah. It's kind of like it's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> I mean, both of my sis, my father had a store in Connecticut, um, an Army-Navy store, pre-GAP. I worked in that since I was 12. You know, I never had a, a, a life in high school on Saturdays. I always worked, except for when I would take a day off to go skiing, which I, you know, paid for myself because I made the money at the store. Yeah. And m both my sisters, uh, once four years younger and once eight years younger, 
they both have their own businesses. So we have three entrepreneurs in one family. Wow. Yeah. Had you, obviously you knew what everyone was doing, but when you realized that when you were at this family reunion, what were some of the insights? Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Right. <laughs> well, the, the insights is that we're very fortunate to be able to have the choice. And not everyone who's made the choice is doing, you know, super well financially. It's really just, uh, you know, just sticking to it, sticking to it. And, and I'm really speaking for the, for the younger young cousins, actually, and that would be beyond the seven. That would be uh, the next generation. But they're sticking to it because they have an idea of how they want to live their life and they want and how they want to contribute and the value that they can bring. And so they have an understanding of what they need to meet the needs that are most important to them which of course always includes, you know, taking care of themselves financially, but, you know, maybe it's dinner with friends or um, walking in the park on the weekend. You know, there's a million things uh, you can do if your finances are, are challenged uh, or focusing, spending the time focusing on researching the next project that they want to do. So my takeaway was that all of them are really happy with their choices. That is powerful. You know, and they're finding their way. And I think you had mentioned the idea of having the choice and it immediately brought up this voice in me that said, or allowing ourselves to make the choice, right? It's that, not always going to be an easy one. You know, I no. think, I think people, you know, I know even in my own life, like no one else in my family is an entrepreneur. So sometimes mm -hmm. my family has Freudian slips where they say I'm unemployed and not self-employed uh -huh. um, or you know, just think, oh, well, you have all this freedom and flexibility. And it's like, but yeah, that also means I have the freedom and flexibility to work a 10-hour day some days. <laughs> right. I like to say you, you can have your cake and eat it too, but you can't always do it at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I mean, understanding the trade-offs. Yeah, exactly. And there are trade-offs. Absolutely. There's always trade-offs, but you have to really decide where you're willing to compromise and where you won't. And I decided early on, intuitively, but in reflection after writing the book, that I wasn't willing to get pinged all the time, I call it. What does that you mean? Know, uh, I couldn't go against my grain. I couldn't, you know, look, I, I, I'm going to be 62, and I couldn't work in those environments where, hey, honey, get me some coffee. Ah, uh, yes. It. Couldn't do it. I mean, and that, that's just a, that's a very simplistic kind of um, example. But I did enough work when I was earlier where that was kind of more pervasive. Um, and I also, even with eco bags, um, I work, we're not completely like in the promotional industry, but we do sort of toe into it a little bit. We're not about getting the thing for the cheapest amount possible um, because I know that's coming off the backs of someone's labor in some other place, and I'm just not willing to do it. I don't care if you've got a really big order for me. I'm not going to do it. I'd rather not make the sale and engage with that customer who's doing the dumpster diving on the cost. They can go somewhere else, but I won't do it. How have you been able to stick to that and hang tight to that when challenged? Because I'm sure you've chafed over oh, the yeah. years. 
Yeah, yeah. I've just said no. I, well, we've never, first of all, we've never ever done anything that was from that environment, an, a non-responsible production environment. Never. We immediately and we learned how to qualify people really fast, um, and you can tell who they are. And they're usually just rolling down through a call list to find the cheapest thing. So it's like I don't want to waste my time. My time's more valuable than that. Um, so we just we never did. You have to learn to say no, and you have to learn to say that sometimes no means you won't get the gig. And you'll live to tell about it. And you'll live to tell about it. Now, sometimes you might decide to say yes because you're willing to override one kind of ping, one thing that compromises you, but you understand that building a relationship will get you to where you want to go next. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. It's your call. I imagine you've had to go both ways over the years. I've had to go both ways, yeah. I've never pinged on the responsible production, but I have been bent on some things when I, you know, you just know when you're saying, okay, I'll do that. And you're like, well, why did I do that? And why is it always the person who you bend the most for is the most trouble? Always. <laughs> it's a rule. It's a rule. Always. It always is. And well, I learned that a lot of times because I was, you know, too nice. I think I think we shouldn't be nice. And I, I, and can somebody please come up with, you know, that's an acronym, nice, <laughs> because it doesn't work. I mean, not that you should be rude, but you shouldn't let nice get in the way of clear thinking. Very important. And it's easier said than done in the moment. Do you oh have God. any tools, tactics, tricks, things that have worked to help you really stay rooted in pushing back on something or saying no or this doesn't work? What's your approach? Yeah, and it's actually just I'm practicing it still, which is when something major comes up like that, take a breath. Give it some air. Don't answer right away. Yeah. Buying for time can be huge. Yeah, time. Buy time. I think sometimes as as. I, actually, I don't even know if it's gendered because I, I think I definitely know men that, that struggle with this as well. We have this tendency to feel a responsibility to give someone an answer and not make them wait because we're going to cause some discomfort for them. They will live. Like if I, a lot of times when someone hits me with something totally out of the blue, I'll say I really don't make decisions like this unless I get a night of sleep. Like, I have to sleep on this for a night. And, you know, I've had people sometimes push back or think I'm being a diva or who knows what else they're thinking. But the alternative is if they push me, they're going to get abrasive, Kara. And they might not like that either. So <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really important to, to give yourself that space and to be able to regroup in that moment, right? 100%. And if you mess up, and it's a it's a disaster. Are you still walking? Are you still breathing? Get a glass of water. You know, I mean, we really have to separate out. What, what I actually do say something in the book: uh, urgent versus emergency. There's a difference, right? Break it down so, for us. What's well, the difference? There is. You can have urgency when it's not an emergency. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something in that too, isn't there? Emergency, you're emerging. You know, I mean, there's something really, you need to know when to, you know, when the fire started, you know, there's fire in, in the back room. You need to know 
call the you know call nine one one and sometimes it's not a fire in the back room it's a fire in your brain <laughs> go go get a glass of water so go get my a glass of water t- is yeah, an important my, piece of information yeah before we wrap up for today yeah <laughs> we've zoomed all over the place yeah we have we've which I think zooming. is so fun and so helpful. What do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from this conversation? Well, you know, I'll, I'll pick up where we just left off, which is go get a glass of water. Because my daughter just thinks, oh, my God, Mom, you told me that all my life. And now that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so when I say get a glass of water, it's not about getting a glass of water. OK, there's a lot more in it. And it came to me from my Aunt B, who lived in Forest Hills, Queens. <laughs> um, it's the act of getting up and away from whatever is distracting or overwhelming you, finding a glass, taking the glass to the sink or a water dispenser, filling it up, blurp, 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 and then taking a sip of water. There's about 60 seconds in there. There's more if you have to go to the dishwasher and find a glass and wash it out. <laughs> but, you know, my point is there's a lot of steps involved, conscious steps involved, where you, you're taking yourself out of the physical position you're in with that overwhelming or challenging thing that's going on or that stress that's going on. You're physically removing yourself from that moment by getting up and going to get the glass of water, which is a series of actions with an intention of filling the glass and having a sip. It gives you the time you need, which is if you just sat there and said, I'm going to give myself a minute and take a breath. Maybe if you're practiced enough, you'll do that. Otherwise, you'll override that. I mean, our brains, we're learning now that with all that's going on with neuroscience, that our brains are patterned, our patterns and are patterned. And we can change our patterns if we are consciously attuned to them. Yes. And so it's intention and desire. And I actually heard this unbelievably cool thing on the radio the other day. I believe it was Radio Lab, which is our brains get the signal from in our intention before we've even verbalized the action. Or put the the words together for the action. So our brains are already working on the things that are pre-verbal. Ooh. Yeah. I need to find that article. I think what you're saying, too, about taking a break, and, and especially around neuroscience, one of the past conversations on the podcast has been with Barbara Oakley, who created the world's most popular MOOC. So massive online open course called Learning How to Learn. Mm-hmm. And we ended up in our conversation talking about sort of around productivity, but specifically around the Pomodoro method. And she was able to add a little bit more context and share like why those five minute breaks that you're supposed to build in can help us. You know, so especially important when it's overwhelming and we're being triggered but even just in terms of when you're really engaged and, you know, dare I say, sort of relaxed to trying to learn something new, like it's important to have those moments to step away because that's when 
it's everything sort of gels and gets absorbed into the brain. And this is a weird metaphor, but my grandmother used to make this thing called jello cake where she would bake just like a regular vanilla cake mm-hmm. and then poke holes in it and pour liquid jello over it and then put Ew. the whole thing in the fridge. It was super <laughs> weird, like thinking about it now. Oh, oh I want to make that actually. It's weird enough for me to want to make it. Oh, it's yeah. so like 50s. And then of course so it 50s. had like some sort of like vanilla pudding frosting yeah, on it. Of course, of course. Out of a can maybe. Yeah. Yes. Oh, everything yeah. out of a package. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, that's but so yeah, it either. makes me think of that image because it's like you're doing all this learning and that's the cake. Yeah. And then like the jello has to sort of seep in and that's what allows it to go deeper and connect to all the open hooks in your brain available. Totally. Yeah, totally get that. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, most people will have their best ideas in the shower, right? Yeah. I have them when I swim. It's when I'm not actually doing the thing, but I'm, I'm digesting and... Um, I guess digesting all the inputs. You're, and there's so you're many triggering inputs right your now. Diff, diffuse learning. Yeah, exactly. And it's so interesting that there's the science around this is actually supporting what our what my auntie B always says. Yeah, <laughs> it's like good. they just did it as 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 rote, you know, it's things they learn. Like, you know, if you're looking for something and you can't find it and you're in a tizzy, she always said, Take a glass and turn it upside down. Ooh, what like, did that do? What why why do that? Well, because it breaks the momentum of the stress. You know, you're running around your house, you're late, you can't find your keys, which means you can't lock your door, which means you can't turn on the car. You know, you're revving up, revving up. If you stop, you find a glass, you turn it upside down, you've taken a moment. Right? Love and you, it. And you then you'll find your keys. It does work, actually. <laughs> Not if your husband loses them. That's his problem. <laughs> or your partner. I keep saying husband, but I realize a lot of people have partner spouses whatever i guess it's sort of like just my go-to word yeah you can't you can't do it for other people just for yourself (laughs) that is amazing well on that note i will be going to get a glass of water after this podcast (laughs) me too (laughs) sharon thank you so much for everything you've done for our environment and then everything that you've done since then i you know yes i've read the book and i encourage others to to read it as well but also just from going online and and benevolently stalking you, you are someone who is out there sharing your missteps, sharing your lessons, and and really so open and honest about it. And I I thank you because it's so important, and we need women like you. Thank you, I appreciate that. And I'd say there are tons of women like me. They just need to get started. So I encourage everybody to get started with whatever they want to start because you never know where it's going to lead you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hey everyone. It's Kara again. Isn't Sharon just so kick-ass? Hopefully she's inspired you to go grab a glass of water, both literally and figuratively. But before you do that, just wanted to remind everyone, all of the links to Sharon and to Eco Bags and to all of the resources that we mentioned in this episode can be found over at the show notes at levitalcoresalon.com. Be sure to link up with Sharon, Eco Bags, and Vitalcore on your favorite social media platforms. 
I want to give a big merci beaucoup to my producer, Craig Snyder, my assistant, Darlene Victoria, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone, and the High Dials for helping with the most excellent theme song. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you. Stop you.